Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, editor-at-large at The Block, and we have a very exciting episode for you folks today with the underpinning market movement with Bitcoin going above 43000 Can't think of a better person to join the show, the chief investment officer from CoinFund, one of my favorite firms operating in the space. So many great folks there. Alex Felix. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you, Frank. Great to be here. And I've always been a big fan of the show. So excited to uh, finally be a guest on. Yeah, of course. And we're happy to we're happy to have you. So walk us through maybe um, your role, right? I know that CoinFund has many different sort of components, a, a liquid fund, as well as um, huge venture operation there. What's under your remit? CoinFund really does cover the waterfront. Um, we have a lot of uh, venture activity as well as um, liquid strategy. Um, you know, today I focus a lot on early stage deal making. Uh, so working very closely with founders, um, looking at new opportunities, um, and some of the liquid responsibilities, uh, are managed by my partner, Seth Gins. Uh, but there's obviously a lot of crossover between, uh, venture and liquid and crypto. A lot of our deal making does include, uh, rights for future tokens or thinking about, uh, token economics and the potential, uh, for token-based business models, um, and therefore, you know, we do kind of look at the firm as one cohesive, uh, you know, practice that's really trying to identify the best opportunities uh, in crypto and to uh, fit them into our strategies. So, you guys raised recently a, a $158 million fund to back crypto startups. What's sort of the lion's share of? What what those companies look like? Yeah, um, so we did just close this summer um, on 158 million dollar uh, seed fund four. So this is our, our fourth uh, vintage and our flagship strategy, uh, which we started uh, back in 2015 as one of the earliest crypto funds. <clears throat> um, where you know we sit today, uh, we're just really excited about you know sort of what we've delivered over the years, and you know VC is hard. Uh, mm-hmm. Most companies fail. Most funds fail to deliver high quality results. Uh, so it's really about building a talent culture around excellence and, and work, work ethic. Um, and for us uh, at CoinFund, this isn't just a job. It's it's really a mission. So I really credit a lot of our success and you know the continued LP relationships that we've been building over the years to uh, our process, our people, um, our results. Um, just over the past eighteen months, we've actually raised five hundred fifty million. Uh, across two two strategies, kind of uh, in this $158 million seed fund four being uh, the most recent. Um, so we're really taking advantage of, uh, you know, sort of what's the common crypto. You know, really nothing has changed from a thesis and outlook perspective, uh, despite a lot of the challenges that both the technology markets and the crypto markets have experienced over the past two years. And we can certainly dive into some of the human fallibility issues, uh, mm-hmm. but we're really excited about where the technology and the progress has um, has been made and and will continue to be made. Uh, so you know what we're focused on looking forward. It's it's kind of hard to say. You know we don't. Uh, we can talk about some subsectors and, and themes and areas of interest, uh, but we don't like to put back pressure on ourselves. Uh, mm. We want to keep the bar exceptionally high. We want to back some of the best founders in the space, and especially in the seed program. Um, 
the most recent fund we closed, we like to uh, let the entrepreneurs kind of guide us into new corners and new areas. So we absolutely must stay uh, open-minded. Uh, we cannot be dogmatic. And we need to you know, really try and learn uh, as fast as the market and the developers and the entrepreneurs are uh, trying to teach us. And, and that's, that's the job um, in, in my mind. What was more difficult, raising during the slowest period, uh, I'd say in several years for crypto this summer was just, it was too quiet. I found myself sometimes twiddling my thumbs and quite bored. Was it harder to convince LPs to put more money into a crypto market that was sanguine and lackluster or more difficult to find companies to actually back? Pacing um, generally isn't something, again, that we try to market time, you know, sort of when we're going to find those companies that are exciting to back. Um, the quality of entrepreneur is, is up a bit on average. And, and I think that's uh, because a lot of the opportunism has uh, been flushed out of the market. It's a much harder job to go out there as a founder now and raise uh, fresh capital uh, to find you know a partner that's willing to take a conviction bet on you. We're seeing you know many less party rounds than we used to, so you really have to convince one of the um, you know leading VCs to to take a bet and to take a bet early on something you're building. Um, as far as fundraising goes, you know when Jake and I started in the space back in 2015, you know, raising our kind of first institutional fund, which was our, our 2015 vintage, that was by far the hardest. Um, you know, now we are able to leverage a lot of the, um, you know, attributes I laid out on our process, our people and our results. And, um, you know, I think we've been able to uh, capture a bunch of market share from your entrepreneurs. Uh, and I think that, uh, that that's really helpful kind of flywheel effect um, I was just looking back at some of our data as we head into year end here. And, you know, over the past three months, um, you know, we tracked something called the whiff rate, which is how much of the market do we not see uh, before a deal is made? And uh, on the Series A side, you know, average over the past three months, kind of ending in October, uh, we saw 80% of deals that got completed. Uh, so we either passed on them or decided to wait. Um, and on the seed side, it was over 60%. So we, we have amazing coverage and we'll continue to improve that uh, to make sure we're seeing as much as we possibly can. But by far, you know, the most challenging thing is, is doing our job and doing it well. Uh, and that's on the investing side. And um, if, if we can do that well, um, then hopefully, you know, fundraising will continue to always be a challenge. Uh, but that we can find, you know, the the steadfast partners that we've been able to uh, attract uh, to the platform uh, over the past few years, and our LP base has has shifted dramatically from twenty twenty. Yeah, walk and, us through that. How how has it changed since the early days? Yeah, early days, you know, was entrepreneurs, high net worth, um, early crypto enthusiasts, um, you know, even up to call it 2019, 2020, I'd say seventy percent of our uh, LP base was uh, in that high net worth family office or um, you know entrepreneur category, and uh, in 2021, 2022 is when we made a big transition. Um, you know, we obviously brought on Chris Perkins, who you know well, uh, our president, who has a ton of experience in building um, you know operational foundations, um, so that we could make that transition to uh, you know raising more institutional capital, as well as uh, you know really 
take back our time, uh, you know, to focus on investing and spending with the entrepreneurs. As our portfolio gets bigger, you know, our job gets harder uh, because we're we're servicing and, and working with uh, more companies. And I think that's been um, you know the best part of the job and, and something you know we hope to continue to do. But today, I'd say our uh, LP base is more than seventy percent institutional, uh, so it's it's totally flip flopped. The old adage of "Hey, the institutions will come in and, and buy it all up when it's cheap" is it, totally playing out. Um, you know, I think uh, some investors got a little bit overexposed during you know the prior bull run and, and then into this uh, recent bear market. Um, and institutions have been hanging around for four or five years, kind of hearing about Web3, hearing about the promise uh, and, you know, have finally stepped up and, and started to, um, you know, make some allocations. But still, uh, there's a lot of room to run there if uh, the space is successful. I don't think there's actually that much competition um, today. If we look back and we're all right about how big this market is, um, there's plenty of room for uh, good managers and, and more managers to, to come in and, and start to uh, invest in Web3. The crossover funds have left a little bit. Um, this is the Web2 folks that, you know, come to Web3. So, I'd say that those crossover funds have been relatively sidelined on this on this move up, this recent move up. So then it's like, where do they go from here is, is an interesting question. Um, you got to feel bad for some of those Canadian pension funds. I feel like every single one of them, the one invested in FTX and the other invested in um, Celsius, I think it was. Um, is there a category that maybe hasn't penetrated the market as much as some others? Like if I were to think about like a lot of the larger hedge funds, um, more on the liquid side, haven't really tapped in or, um, those types of firms, maybe sovereign wealth. Um, whereas you have seen a lot of endowment activity, a lot of, pension funds to a degree, like what, where sort of are we early um, from an institutional perspective? Yeah, we're, we're definitely early ac- across the board. Um, you know, the mm. still the number of, you know, firms that have come into the space is, is, is quite low on an absolute basis. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, generally we're seeing like inside out strategies here where, you know, crypto as we know it and Web3 as we know it is community and developer led. You know, there's no Tim from Apple on stage telling us what the next 10 years look like. And as a result, a lot of the, you know, folks who have dedicated the amount of time required to learn, come up the curve, you know, get excited about it, start to teach their institution about it um, and, you know, spend enough time in the space to feel like they're making good decisions um, is still, you know, a small select number of uh, institutional folks with a usually someone inside there that's kind of an internal advocate or someone who knows the space well. Um, so I think that'll continue to permeate. I don't think that, um, you know, as you, as you noted, the liquid markets uh, have really institutionalized in crypto yet. Um, I, I think the, you know, allocations, you know, to liquid crypto have been largely from, uh, you know, the high net worth category and and some others. From, from funds like CoinFund rather than, Rather than, you know, you think of some of the biggest um, hedge funds, like anything over $10 billion, like Bridgewater, um, a Citadel, we had heard rumblings of some activity. But, I mean, even if, they, even if they've got some guy playing around, it is, it is a fraction of 
a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of what their overall house has. Um, and, and that's the interesting when, when I sort of think about like, are we really think about it from two different buckets, the retail institutional, um, we'll know we're not early on the retail side when our Uber drivers start asking us for, uh, you know, coin recommendations, but zooming out, looking at that long, looking at crypto within the span of 10, 20 years, um, none of those really big players have gotten involved because we don't really have the capital markets for it. They're just, I mean, and we had, we were heading in the right direction before it, it experienced that credit crunch or credit crisis and then FTX. But now it's just, there's no, there is no, I mean, there is an extent, but it, Coinbase and some other platforms, but I mean, now there's no, I mean, the biggest lender is gone, right? The, the, there's, there's still no real, um, prime broker with the balance sheet that's reputable. There's still no custodian with a big balance sheet and that's, you know, has the proper licensing and stuff, but then serves like long tail assets. Like you, you have Fidelity, but they just do Bitcoin and ETH. So all of these pieces are missing. And to me, that's the biggest sign that there's there's a very limited institutional flow. And to your point, most of the exposures vis-a-vis venture funds. Yeah, it's it's easier, you know, to not have to um, you know, sort of think about re-underwriting a fund every month. Um, for some allocators, you know, they don't want to stay on top of all the market movements. They're, you know, longer term thinkers, and so they've liked some of the more passive you know, venture capital structures uh, to start to get exposure and allocation here. But I think when that liquid, um, you know, flood does come, it, it'll come in a big way. I mean, we're still kind of unpacking the corporate finance toolkit to try and figure out, you know, what fundamentals on tokens should be, how to apply different pieces of the corporate finance toolkit to different styles of tokens, um, as these are programmable digital assets. So, you can really program them to do anything. And we've seen everything from program to do governance on a DAO to, you know, capturing fees and, um, and everything in between. So, uh, I mean, what it was only last cycle that we had rebasing tokens and all kinds of wacky, Mm -hmm. you know, structures. Uh, and, and the reality is even when you think about large hedge funds, uh, they have a box too, you know, some are focused on equities and, and under kind of the sec mandate, uh, which makes it really hard to invest in a, in anything that might be labeled a commodity um, for, you know, other more commodity or macro focused hedge funds. Um, you know, they still they, they they still could have, you know, some issues with how to get exposure to crypto. So I do think the ETF and, you know, things that will help people find a way, um, you know, to get into crypto uh, vis-a-vis a structure that is palpable and um, fits their mandate, like that's what crypto is doing. It's sort of permeating throughout the capital markets to, to try and find those um, areas of, of, uh, of demand. Um, the lending markets have gone to zero, right? Genesis mm-hmm. did $50 billion, uh, maybe more. I forget if it was per quarter or per year uh, back in 2021, 2022. Um, you know, that's all totally reset. So I'd say maybe it's not that it doesn't exist, but it's just 
it's not mature. Um, so we're, we're constantly mm-hmm. seeing, you know, resets in how people were approaching it and, and sort of what risk management looks like and, you know, what the opportunity set looks like. Um, and we're, we're continuing to, you know, to, to learn by doing. It's interesting. It doesn't seem like the uh, move to the upside and on the liquid side has has helped support the valuations of firms at the later stage with maybe something like an open sea being the poster child of that um, with where their shares are trading on the secondary relative to their bull market valuation. Uh, what what will save the valuations of some of these? And this is obviously a market-wide phenomenon. You look at something like, um, what was it, the one that just went public? Um, and, and, uh, whatchamacallit? Um, the Bitcoin miner? No, I'm thinking of the normal economy. Um, the app where you get food delivered, Instacart. Oh, Instacart. Um, yeah. I think their highest valuation was like 30, 39 billion. Their Series D or E or whatever it happened to have been. Um, and then they went public at like nine. Um, so this isn't just a crypto thing. It's kind of a overall economy thing. But what can save the crypto firms maybe specifically, um, or or they just they've got everybody's got to get used to the reset, and that's just the name of the game. Yeah, it's I think it's multifaceted. One, you're right that you know tech valuations in general, and especially late stage valuations headed into um, public markets, have come down dramatically. Um, you know, there was also Klarna, you know, the Swedish. Um, Klarna, yeah. You know, company that uh, was down 80% or or something, you know, very large. But some of that is due to obviously capitalizing, you know, sort of the low interest rate environment and having to spend Mm -hmm. on growth. Um, And now we're in a very different, Mm -hmm. you know, interest rate environment. And I don't necessarily think that anything changes as far as, you know, why is venture and why is growth and why is technology you know, sort of an asset class that's extremely investable in all macro conditions, uh, but it does impact valuations, multiples, and the fundamentals required um, to, you know, support some of those large valuations. I, I did see a positive data point yesterday. Um, I saw that Core Weave uh, announced a round with Fidelity at $7 billion. That seemed like an outlier to mm-hmm. me uh, based on, you know, sort of where, what we've seen in mid to later stage markets. So how does that... How does that shift then alter the framework for how you do your job, even at the early stage, right? Because um, let's say uh, OpenSea 2.0 comes along, FTX 2.0, or some of these other big unicorns that are like, or may no longer be unicorns. Um, in this new world of higher interest rates, is is the expectation of what you can get out of even uh, out, of, out of a seed deal in the future is that is that reconfigured um, 100x's go to 25x's or something in that range it, it's all a market sizing question and our general philosophy you know for crypto has been almost everyone you know universally is underappreciated the size of the, the market opportunity for Web3. It's open source, it's open competition. When we make this transition to Web3 Rails, 
it will be very hard to compete against, you know, from any Web2 mm. or other business model. So while more efficient, while potentially, you know, cheaper at scale, um, you know, you see something like Solana, um, which has very low transaction fees and trades on a much higher, you know, revenue multiple than something like Ethereum, which has higher transaction fees, but also that's where all the customers are. And, and um, you mm-hmm. know, people want to, um, you know, make sure that they're going where the, where the puck is and where they can kind of continue to grow their businesses during all market conditions. We, we've been through three cycles, you know, since founding the firm mm-hmm. in 2015. And I don't think that there's one, you know, valuation regime. But all cycles have been under a ZERP picture. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'd agree with that. But um, again, if we go back to the framework, like how big is the total addressable market opportunity for Web3? And then we start to sub subsegment that into... Well, do you want to place money if you're placing money, you know, in later stage deals or series A plus, you probably want to go where there's some evidence of large companies being built, you know, so that might be mm-hmm. Web3 infrastructure, CFI, DeFi, um, gaming and NFTs, as you noted. Mm-hmm. And then when you're, you know, starting to look at what are some of the next potentials for really large subsectors, um, that's where you know, we think seed investing is, is incredi- an incredibly important tool uh, because we haven't, we, we can start to hypothesize around what that, that market might look like, but it has not come together yet. So you take Web3 times AI, you know, for example, a lot of our vision around how the data pipeline needs to be verified and that requires, you know, Web3 tools and zero knowledge proofs. Um, it's just too early to, to actually see demand uh, for that infrastructure yet. But when you flip back to, um, you know, sort of CFI, DeFi, you, you also see that some people bought into business models that might not have been durable or were taking too much risk. Uh, a lot of the, you know, companies that put up big revenue numbers were also, um, you know, folks that pulled forward education and adoption of crypto assets in a simple UI, you know, called some of the early exchanges, uh, but introduced another intermediary and, um, you know, fell victim to, you know, a bunch of governance and um, uh, mismanagement and risk-taking challenges that, you know, was a really demand for $50 billion of safe lending uh, in a prime brokerage model in crypto. I don't know. Uh, but, you know, clearly the, the market didn't really support that uh, in, in the longer term. So, you know, y- your question about where do valuations go um, is why we or why I think that our strategies are how I want to invest in crypto. A little bit more of a barbell approach, a little bit more, you know, let's be early and try to be right um, in a handful of names on the on the really early stage side. And then let's go to, you know, some of the more mature, more accessible, um, you know, token opportunities where there is some price discovery um, from the broader market. And uh, we have a, a different, you know, or more interesting view than uh, we think others do. Um, but I think until we get really good data, uh, until we get really good durability, uh, of numbers, that middle mid to late stage, uh, on the private side is, is tricky just cause you don't have the track record, you know, my prior to coming to crypto, I was in the private equity world. Uh, and I focused on investing in SaaS, fintech and, and payments and, you know, private equity is all about levering companies up, but we had, you know, sufficient evidence of many years of track record and in crypto 
everything outside of Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Coinbase is less than six years old. Even still, we're going to have Dan Tapiero come on the show, I think, next week. So he's going to help give give some of that later stage uh, vantage point. So it's, it'll be nice to ju- have that juxtaposed with this conversation, which is, uh, we're kind of going broad, but a little bit more focused on the early stage, uh, which is where you spend most, most of your energy. Um, he's got to have a tough job. I just told him, I told him not financial advice, but maybe load up on coin. That seems like a good, a good <laughs> deal. Um, so, okay, but just to dig a bit deeper, are there different things that allocators of capital have to consider now at the early stage, given the changes that we've seen both in crypto and the broader world, um, certain things that you want um, from a business perspective or not not really? Well, are you talking about to allocate to a manager or that they want to see in our underlying companies? Uh, to, uh, to, to sort of, is there anything you want to see, you want to see in, in firms now that maybe was underemphasized yeah, previously? Um, a, a bunch of stuff and every you know market cycle and downturn, um, at least from the investing lens, we've been able to chip away at getting to a more balanced, you know, investor and founder friendly uh, structure. So you know, if you recall the early days, it was, you know, token purchases and SAFs. And, you know, now we've kind of gotten to more of a gold standard, which is uh, equity plus token. Um, and I think a lot of the, you know, challenges we've seen with big tech companies um, in, in this past cycle, even OpenAI as recently as, you know, two weekends ago is, um, it's just governance problems, right? And, you know, who who's accountable to who, you know, are, are people really being transparent around what they're building? Um, so, you know, going deeper on founders' backgrounds, reference checks, um, you know, running as much as you can to, to really understand the motivations of, of people behind these businesses is super important. O- OpenAI had 10,000 businesses built on top of it. If it had gone away in a weekend, it would just re-emphasize why people should be building, you know, on, on decentralized platforms and, and decentralized infrastructure. I don't infrastructure. know who would be, <laughs> who'd be editing my, uh, who'd be coming up with the podcast notes. That's It'd be tough, but yeah. So, you know, obviously governance is one structure is another. So finding, you know, good entry points and, and risk reward as we start to get some data points on what's working, what's not, what, what are the, you know, valuation expectations of, you know, certain subsectors if they do work. Um, you know, we're seeing you know more focus and, and more just questioning around, well, what are the use cases? Like I look back over the past year and two thirds of our investing has been on the infrastructure side, uh, you know, exploring a bunch of the you know application developer tools that are required kind of above the base layer uh, and below, you know, sort of consumer applications. But why is that? Um, and the why there is I can find much better signal in going to talk to other developers who might adopt infrastructure uh, because they're building right now than I can going out and testing the consumer markets on, you know, will you buy this next NFT or will you buy, um, you know, this, this crypto gaming app? Um, we just have a period where, you know, even some of my friends that are in the tech industry or in the finance industry said, well, what's been going on the past two years? Like kind of just fell off my radar and have been thinking about it. Um, so that's kind of the under underlying question is, you know, 
what are the what are the use cases? What are the killer apps? And last every cycle, we get a couple more verticals that start to make sense. Um, and if anything, crypto and Web three did wrong last cycle. It was having a and and personally, you know, this is my my reflection was having a false sense of diversification. Uh, we started to see. NFTs and mm. digital art attract new uh, end markets that we think that we didn't think had any interest in DeFi, um, and DeFi DGens were continuing to do their thing too. Um, but having that diversity of interests, um, you know, should have led to okay, maybe one subsector is, is doing poorly, but another one's doing well. But even when you go up to the macro level, you know, the people last year were complaining that the sixty forty you know portfolio rule is dead because. Stocks and bonds were all going down or, mm-hmm. um, you know, so we, we saw a couple, you know, just strange years where there, there was no benefit to diversification. And the Web3 economy really has a heartbeat. And that's the amount of money in stable coins or real world assets or other things that are built on top of these uh, blockchains. And when that all halves or goes down 90% too, because a lot of, you know, crypto wealth is denominated in other you know, volatile project tokens, um, you, you really see the end markets just sputter. Um, and I think that's what we saw. So, you know, looking forward, what do we want to see? We want to see real durability of use cases for crypto infrastructure, where the marketing regime is not talking about crypto or, or Web3. Um, you know, Demo, for an example, a nest for cars, you know, they go to market, they don't really need to mention anything uh, about you know, the crypto primitives that they're using, uh, you know, to build and differentiate in that use case. Uh, Cryptoys, um, you know, who's done partnerships with Disney and Mattel, um, you know, launching just digital toys. They don't need to talk about, you know, sort of NFTs or even uh, Web3 if they can nail, you know, the go-to-market on that. Um, and and so on and so forth. You know, I think that's, that's what has to happen is people need to start adopting based on the value propositions of what's being built, not on the af- affinity or the affiliation, you know, with crypto and there. So I guess to sort of round things out, um, what segments are you most interested or appearing to be most interesting um, looking to the next six months? Yeah, um, great question. Um, and, you know, we tend to uh, not be dogmatic, as, as I mentioned before, um, but we have a number of areas of interest. Obviously, my partner, Jake, has been you know probably the, the for- foremost thought leader on the intersection of uh, Web3 and AI. Um, so we've made a number of investments there already. Um, you know, we're very focused on uh, marketplaces for you know, physical infrastructure and digital services. Uh, so continuing to look at you know, sort of the broader deep in uh, landscape. Um, I think gaming, you know, is, is likely to be where Web3 finds its next 100 million users. Um, we have some amazing launches coming up uh, off the grid. Uh, Godzilla's a game I got to demo last week, and it was just unbelievable. Triple A quality product, um, you know, real uh, Web2 gaming experience with a uh, economy, a bunch of Web3 tooling and uh, a lot of, you know, economics that uh, I think will make sense for uh, gaming properties. So we, we've finally given it enough time, you know, four years is what it really takes to you know, build fun content uh, to actually see, you know, gaming take off. On the DeFi side, uh, you know, continuing to focus on, you know, sort of new, um, 
primitives, uh, especially in, in thinking about stable coins, thinking about real world assets. We recently backed um, Robert Leshner's uh, new company, Superstate, um, which has some exciting you know progress and has built a great team already. Um, we're thinking about new distribution channels. That guy and Tarun Chitra, they run a yeah. venture from themselves. <laughs> I don't know how they have the time. <laughs> these guys are these guys are super superhuman. Unbelievable, it's quite impressive. Um, I, yeah, that's going to be an interesting company to watch um, for sure. And then I'd say the last two, uh, you know, very quickly uh, on the modular side. Um, oh yeah, we've been you know very focused on that for the past couple of years and starting to see some interesting data. Interesting signals, um, you know, a- across Cosmos, you know, obviously things like Celestia and, and others um, starting to get more demand as we break apart execution, data availability, consensus and, and settlement. I think it changes the game for layer one business models in, mm. in a way that we haven't really anticipated yet. How so? Well, you know, when you start to break these things apart and unbundle them, mm-hmm. you start to lose that lock in. To any one particular ecosystem or, or one particular service, um, and you start to actually ascribe more value in my mind to uh, the virtual machine, right? And sort of which virtual machine are you focused on using versus which layer one are you um, using for security? So in the Cosmos ecosystem, for example, we've already seen a project called Neutron a start to use. The Atom Hub, they're the first ones to take security from the Atom Hub, but they can do everything else themselves. Um, some people will roll, roll their own security, others won't. Um, but you know, Ethereum will make some progress on you know data availability too, and we'll sort of see what the real demand is for that. But you also have you know folks like Eigenlayer, and um, I think there's one called Babylon um, starting to sell you know security as a service, right? So we're we're starting to see. You know, just some ways that I don't think transaction fees will be the only way or the best way to monetize, you know, sort of the the virtual machine looking forward. I know Solana is thinking about, um, well, what other application developer you know, infrastructure can they launch alongside their blockchain that developers can contract with versus having to try and extract all the, you know, fee potential of using the Solana blockchain or the SVM directly on chain. Um, so I think these are all interesting tea leaves um, that start to lead us to, okay, what's going to be really important. Another you know area of interest is new distribution channels, you know, for us. So like who owns the consumer and then, you know, and then how does the infrastructure sort of share in the fees? Um, Facebook kind of failed here. Um, you know, PayPal is making some progress with their stable coin as, as a beachhead. Um, a ton, you know, the Telegram ecosystems in, incredibly interesting and uh, something we spent a lot of time on. Um, starting to, you know, think about some investments there that'll be pretty exciting. But there's just a lot going on, and you know, forever, you know, we've rebutted this fat protocol thesis, but now you're starting to, you know, think about okay, well, controlling the users can be the most important thing because you no longer have this lock-in at the layer one level if you start to have unbundling it changes, it changes what yeah. you can do fundamentally. So it seems like the, the, the tech debt will be at the, um, at the virtual machine level, right? So if I'm on solidity, you know, what else can I do through EVM or, and, and if I wanted to change, you know, some components of how my project 
or how my infrastructure, you know, works. If I'm Rust based, you know, with SVM or um, Cosm Wasm, you know, is that important? A lot of people ran around and said, you know, let's also have Move as a as a programming language. So I think a lot just goes back to like how flexible these EVMs can become to support uh, different developer um, preferences. Well said. Well, Alex Felix, thanks so much for joining the program. Thank you, Frank. Um, always great to chat and really appreciate you having me on and looking forward to a uh, fun year ahead. I think some of the darker clouds are, are in the rear view now. So, <laughs> Where can our listeners uh, learn more about what CoinFund's doing and find you? Yeah, uh, we have a great blog, um, blog.coinfund.io. Um, I'm on X as uh, FlexThought, F-L-E-X-T-H-O-U-G-H-T. Um, and uh, our website, you know, it's a generally a pretty good portal, uh, coinfund.io, um, to find uh, what we're up to. So we'd love to hear from you. And um, especially since projects out there, um, doors always open. So very excited about the next um, next few years and, and what we can all do together. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot, Frank. Have a great day. Thank mm-hmm. you.